Live from the home office of Ag Solutions Network, it's the Ag Emerge Podcast. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soils, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottoms. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Hey there. We're so glad you joined us for this episode with Keith Burns. Many of you have probably heard of or know Keith. Keith and his brother Brian operate Green Cover Seed, their family-owned business in Nebraska. Today, we talk about not only the cover crop benefits Keith has discovered, but maybe even as important, how to think about and maximize soil biology. We've got a great discussion about cover crops and water, as well as the economics of carbon. And that's just a start. Keith reminds us that cover crops are just one of the tools in your toolbox that you can use to improve your soil health system. You can tell Keith has a heart for learning and for sharing what he's learned about the benefits of cover crops and no-till farming, all to help others. So let's dig in. Well, hi, Keith. Welcome to today's Ag Emerge podcast. We're excited for you to join us today. Yeah, thank you, Kim. Thank you, Monty. Uh, it's good to visit with you guys and uh, always love to share information when I get the chance. Yes, well, I appreciate it. I I had the opportunity to get to visit with you um, at the Soil Health Conference and, um, you know, we had some uh, good conversation there and your, uh, your educational uh, side came out. I like I like that. So I appreciate uh, uh, how you um, how you really are a great teacher in, in what you do and the work that you do. But what I'm wondering is if you'd take just a moment to tell us a little bit about your soil health journey. How did you get to the spot where you're at? Because I think a lot of people, you know, we know where you're at now. We'll talk about that a little bit. But what got you here and how, how did you move along that path? Sure. Yeah. Well, like I say, I do have an educational background. I taught school. Uh, my, my degree in college is in ag education. And so I taught uh, high school agriculture and then kind of morphed over into computers and did that for 10 years. Uh, after 10 years, my dad was kind of getting ready to retire. So uh, I moved the family back to the farm. And I farmed with my brother, Brian, and uh, we just, well, you know, we're pretty, we were all no-till, but other than that, fairly traditional farming system. Did that for about 10 years. And then in 2008, uh, we applied for and received a, a small SARE grant, one of the farmer rancher SARE grants. Got a little bit of money and we put in uh, soil moisture sensors because the question that we had about cover crops, because it was just, just starting, people were just starting to talk about cover crops back then. And our question, along with a lot of other people's, was, well, but aren't these things going to take too much moisture and aren't we going to hurt our next crop? Uh, because that's that's a pretty big deal for us, especially, you know, our, our program was growing wheat. You have that wheat stubble, you bank all that moisture up, and then you plant corn the next year and have a really good corn yield. And we were worried about taking too much of that moisture from that wheat stubble. So we got this grant, uh, put in the moisture sensors. We bought uh, probably 30 different types of cover crop seeds planted them all out there in strips, and then we mixed them together and had several different mixes out there as well. And as a result of doing that, we learned several things. Number one, we learned that the, the cover crops, especially the mixes, weren't using moisture at the levels that we feared that they would. Uh, they were using moisture, definitely, but not as much as we thought. 
and especially the mixes. We just we just saw that the mixes were much more efficient with the moisture use, uh, the moisture levels in the soil recovered. And the other thing is just where we had the bare wheat stubble. I mean, it wasn't bare ground because we had we had nice wheat stubble out there. <clears throat> but even that, you know, lost uh, a decent amount of moisture. And so you can't just say the cover crops are using this much moisture. You have to look at what your soil would be losing if there was nothing growing out there anyway. And it was a significant number. Uh, we saw that the cattle did exceptionally well because we planted the rest of the field, not just where we had the plots. And the cattle did exceptionally well grazing these mixes in the late summer and through the fall and early winter. Uh, and then the last thing that we discovered is that a lot of the seed was just hard to find. You know, you couldn't just go down to the co-op and buy radish seed and vetch and winter lentils and some of these different things that, you know, were just really hard to find. So we were already kind of looking for something to expand our operation to help get some of the kids back to the farm if they wanted that opportunity. So we kind of made the decision in, in 2009 to move forward with green cover seed uh, as a way to expand uh, our, our opportunities and bring the kids back to the farm without having to go out and try to rent another two, 3,000 acres of farm ground, which, you know, we considered risky. Looking back now, it, it, it seems like it was a good decision. It was great timing uh, because, you know, 2009, 2010 was really just kind of the beginning of what I would term the soil health movement in the country. And, you know, NRCS really got on board uh, and it's, it's just grown really quickly and we've just been blessed to be able to grow right along with the movement. Uh, so that's kind of how we got started. You know, 2009, we just bought seed from another supplier and resold it. 2010, we started mixing seed and uh, we've never really looked back uh, from the very beginning uh, when we started mixing seed in 2010. Uh, we really were adamant about we want to make every mix customized for each individual customer so we can base it on what's going to be best for their ground and their situation and not try to have a, you know, two or three sizes fits all type uh, model. And I would say the rest of the industry is still kind of playing catch up to that. I, I think you're definitely still the leader in the customized mixes and, and they're getting, some are getting more of the mixes, uh, you know, put together on the shelf for a forage mix or a summer mix, stuff like that. But still, with your amazing number. I mean, at the time I visited the plant two years ago, I think you had 160 SKUs. I can't imagine. I'm knowing you, uh, Keith, <laughs> and, and knowing your team members who were, um, you know, giving you a hard time about the number of SKUs. I imagine you're a little bit higher than that now. Yeah, uh, we're, we're probably over 200 different SKUs. Yeah. And then within each one of those, we may have multiple lot numbers that we have to keep track of, yeah. you know, within that SKU. So it, it, it does get uh, a little hairy sometimes trying to <laughs> know where we put stuff. And so we've made a lot of progress in that regard, but but yeah, I, I would say that, you know, we probably are doing more of the customized mixing. And, and part of it is because we sell across such a wide geography. Mm -hmm. If I was only selling within a 60 mile radius of our plant here, I, you know, I could do some standardized mixes and feel pretty decent about that because it's not gonna vary a lot within that geography, mm -hmm. you know, but because we sell, you know, all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast and Alaska and Hawaii and Canada and all points in between, you know, we just, we can't have standardized mixes to meet that wide of a customer base. Right. So that's really interesting. You started with it to, uh, you know, see what you had as far as water use efficiency or how much, how much water are we giving up to the cover crop versus fallow ground? Um, maybe talk about that a little bit with all those different individual, so you had penetr or tensiometer type probes 
on each one of these individual seeds and plus the different mix combinations and on bare ground. When they ran all the numbers in the end, Keith, what did you see that you were, obviously you're going to give up maybe let's say four inches, just as an example, on, on fallow ground? You know, were you giving up maybe six inches with the cover crops and or as or what were those actual numbers and then then you look at oh my net difference is only one inch uh, mm-hmm. is it worth the carbon and uh, all the other benefits and the grazing for that one inch of water is that right yeah so what we saw is on some of the monoculture especially the ones that did not die with the frost so like common vetch uh, for example i know is one of the heaviest water users because it, it grew very aggressively you know all the way up through uh, mid-November, uh, even up to Thanksgiving time. And so that probably had the soil moisture profile pulled down as much as anything. Uh, and But but the mixes, you know, that had, you know, vetch and rye and oats and cowpeas and, you know, a number of different things in it, uh, they were much more efficient at how they use moisture and they recovered faster as well. So I would say the difference between just the wheat stubble with nothing growing in it other than maybe a little bit of volunteer wheat uh, and those diverse mixes was probably a couple of inches of water. The difference between the wheat stubble and a monoculture mix would have been as much as five or six inches. Now, a lot of that, you know, we had recovery through the winter time. And, and that's what I tell people. Don't, you know, in this situation where you're doing wheat stubble and then you're not planting until next April or May, you know, don't worry about how much moisture is there in November because the corn doesn't need moisture in November. You just need to worry about what it looks like, you know, come May. And so generally, and there's been a lot of studies, you know, Dwayne Beck has some good numbers, uh, Jay Fuhrer up in North Dakota, they've done some research with this too. Most all the situations where I've seen where they've done that and they actually tested the moisture back out to when you're going to plant the next crop, there's been almost zero uh, water difference because the cover crops are going to recover moisture quicker. They're going to be less evaporation. There's going to be much better infiltration from that. And so the net result is, is that you recapture what has been used and what has been lost much quicker. But what I warn people about is if you're in an arid environment and you want to do a cover crop, then one of the considerations you have to have is you may need some recovery time after that cover crop to recapture that moisture. Don't think that you can grow a cover crop for three months and come right in and plant another cash crop right into that. Whereas, for example, out in, in Illinois, where you guys are at, you can certainly do that you know, with a spring growing cover crop, plant into it green, terminate it, and you're off to the races. Uh, so, you know, cover crops could definitely be used to manage moisture, but how you use them is going to be different depending upon how much moisture you have. And one thing that was interesting working with farmers in California is along for 15 years, been working with Jeff Mitchell out there and, and the long-term mm-hmm. conservation tillage, no tillage study that he's been doing with and without cover crops you know, it started out pretty basic and it's gotten a little more, a little less tillage, a little more complexity in the cover crops over time. But he had this huge data set of neutron probes of all the water use that he'd ever done. And we had the same question, how much water are we using? And where he's at on the west side, it's $700 to $2,000 an acre foot for water. So that's a big price tag to have to pay. And one of the things he found is it was about 2.1 to 2.3 inches is the net difference of the cover crop because of uh, of u- total water utilization, whether it came from rainfall or irrigation. Mm-hmm. But like you said, uh, definitely, especially when you get further west where you have higher E, and like Dwayne says, taking the E out of ET, uh, it really helped with keeping cover on the ground. 
And uh, that's an interesting point that you made from observations of being able to, that the water balance within the soil as far as having root channels, so you have more macropores, and then also the infiltration from the dead root. Uh, there's lots of other things in there, but he could see it just by, they'd always recorded the information for 10 years, but hadn't analyzed it. And then yeah. when we went back through and analyzed it, that was pretty consistent. So you got to look at what am I gaining in yield and soil health and trading a little bit of water to do that. And, and, and plus the yield gains just from having cooler temperatures um, is huge too. So Yeah, it's a game changer. And then out here, you know, for us too, and, and in a lot of the plain states, you know, snow catching is, is a pretty important thing too, because if I can grow a five foot tall cover crop through the summer, and uh, now I've got a snow fence out there and I can catch all that snow that blows off my neighbor's tilled now, fields, all the soybean fields. Now you Obviously, pay the neighbor back, right, Keith? Come on now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> Capture I mean, some of the neighbor's dirt gonna, too. <laughs> you're, you're not catching snow in California, but I can sure catch it here. And, and anytime we can do that, that's, that's, you know, that could be a couple inches and that two right. inches can make all the difference in the world come next summer. And that's been one of the advantages of guys running stripper headers in western yes, kansas yes. And, and colorado where we work too is that you know they capture the snowfall it's a it's a big deal so mm -hmm. but anyway and, and speaking of that you know one of the things we found we love stripped straw and especially when we're growing rye and triticale you know we'll have you know five foot tall stripped straw what we found though is because that straw is so tall it rots off at the ground mm. and now you've got all this long straw and if you don't have something planted in there that long straw will tend to kind of move and pile up. It'll make piles and make it very difficult to plant into. But if you go through there and you plant a cover crop and that cover crop starts to grow up, it kind of anchors all that stuff in place. Then it's not going to blow. It's not going to move with the water next spring. And it's, it's, I, I've always found it much easier to plant into uh, tall straw with a cover crop, much, much easier than a straw without a cover crop. Yeah, because it'll kind of just, it'll break off or it's already break off, makes kind of windrows. And that's right. Then you have that's a bailing right. pass instead of a planting pass, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Nobody likes that. So anyway, well, that's interesting to hear your story. And, and I know, Kim, you wanted to visit maybe more about at the Soil Health Institute and those well, kind of things. Well, yeah, and, and just something that, that I'm thinking about as y'all are talking is just, you know, when we're talking about ag emerge, we're trying to think about, you know, changing that ag paradigm. And, and you speak a lot to that because it's it's not a silver bullet. Uh, nothing that, you know, it's it's trying different things, but you're finding these things as you go and uh, and you're sharing that information. And so I just think that's really um, exciting. And uh, no, I, I just, we picked up a lot of great information at, uh, at the Soil Health Conference, one of them being, you know, they did a lot of, um, there's a lot of peer review stuff now on um, really the cost effectiveness of cover crops. And it's not plant a cover crop, gain this much yield. It's just, that's not how it's playing out. And so, mm -hmm. but that, that whole document, I don't know if you picked up one of those, we'll put the link to it um, uh, that they spoke about there. Um, but just a lot of great research on the different areas of where people are combining uh, savings and gains to uh, equal out this uh, whole process. That's right. And, and when you look at the economics of this, you definitely, you know, we're no longer, you know, if, if you have the soil health mindset, I guess, or regenerative ag mindset, if you, if you want, uh, you definitely are moving away from just simply looking at how much can I grow? What's my, what's my yield? 
you know, and it's much more so how much can I make? What's my profit? And, you know, that like you mentioned, you know, that profit is going to come not only from possibly yielding as much or more, but also from having less inputs into the system. And that's where a lot of people are finding it. And the other thing that, you know, that we really try to stress in when we go out and we teach is that, you know, cover crops is just another tool. It's, it's like no-till, you know, it can be even like a herbicide or even like tillage. It's, it's a tool, you know, in your toolbox, but the, the system that we try to teach people about is more of a soil health or regenerative ag type system of which cover crops is just one of the components. If, if, if farmers try to put cover crops into what they're currently doing and they don't change other parts of their farming system or their rotation, it, it will be a disaster and it likely will hurt them. They have to change other parts of their management strategy in order to accommodate what the cover crops are doing and and you just can't shove it in there without making other changes. So we try to teach about soil health systems and if people understand what's going on in the soil, then really cover crops sell themselves. I mean, you don't, you don't have to do much work right. to sell cover crops if people understand what's going on in the soil. And I, I think that's a, a key point because when you look at the five soil health principles and of everything that we do within the system, um, you know, when, when I started out and, and started with California Ag Solutions and then it developed in Ag Solutions Network, you know, we were focusing on uh, number one for sure, which is no tillage or as minimum of tillage as possible. You know, that was, I've been advocating for that. Like you said, we've been no-till farmers for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And, and that, the no tillage, that's one of the five. You know, and the second one was looking at um, being able to keep residues on the soil, you know, keep the soil protected and those kind of things. Well, which by default, you do that because you're not tilling it in. Right. But what I think is interesting is cover crops are the only tool in the in the in this tool approach that addresses all five of the soil health principles because cover crops themselves can function as tillage i i, I always say that how many roots would a, a million seeds of a of a cereal crop put in the ground uh compared to a shank every 30 inches you know yeah i mean yeah. <laughs> the amount of tillage that happens is is out of this world so why are we bothering that second thing is residues on the surface not only do you have um residues they're green residues so rather than having something that's dead rotting and possibly blowing away you've got something that's holding in place providing even better soil armor on for the second soil health principle right and the third is really key to what you do at green cover seeds is high diversity mixes i I think don't you charge more if they don't leave the plant without more than eight species i think you probably should (laughs) you know because you know well we we don't charge more but we will shame you a little bit well shaming yes yeah I've, I've heard of cover crop shaming here. Yeah. You, you heard it first. Yes, hashtag, we've got it already. <laughs> but, you know, cover crops in, in our largely monoculture uh, crops that we're raising. So if you're in Montana and, or you've got cereal grain after cereal grain after cereal grain and maybe a canola or lentil mixed in there occasionally by accident. You know, if you're in Kansas, you got corn wheat, corn wheat, milo, something like that. Uh, in, in California, a lot of those are tomato, 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 tomato. And then obviously you got the corn belt, corn soybean complex, right? But the principle three of a diversity, cover crops with the high diversity mixes that you're doing, that addresses that beautifully. And, and, yeah, and, that's and, right. And, and I always tell people, you know, if, if you're going to try to add diversity to your cash cropping system, you, you can do it, but it's going to take specialized equipment specialized mm-hmm. knowledge and specialized marketing if you're going to bring additional diversity into your cash crop. And, and most people just aren't set up to do that. They don't want to do that. It's, you know, it's a lot of work. 
but you can add tremendous amount of diversity through cover crops. You don't need specialized equipment. You can just go out there with a regular grain drill. Guys putting it in with their 15-inch planters. It works mm-hmm. just fine. You don't need specialized knowledge. You know, we can help you out with that because we're not growing this stuff to grain production. We're just wanting the biomass. Right. And, and it's easy to grow biomass. It's hard to grow the actual finished grain product. And you don't need a specialized market because your market is the soil. It's the soil biology. And so your market is right there. So it's extremely easy to add that diversity that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's extremely difficult if you're going to try to add that diversity through cash crops. And then, you know, the fourth soil health principle, you know, keeping something growing all the time. I could have them out of order, but, you know, that's how I I remember them. But, you know, cover crops are key to that. So, I mean, it's an opportunity to have a living root uh, feeding carbon into the soil. And you alluded to economics a little bit. We're going to get there in a second with carbonomics, right? But, uh, uh, you know, the feeding the soil all the time. And then then the fifth one, which uh, people, especially in, in California, like to give me a hard time about, is integrating the livestock. So mm-hmm. now because we're on the podcast here today, and I know guys are listening to this in their truck, and I'm, I'm hopefully when this is broadcast, I'm a long ways away from them, you know, so they, <laughs> they can't get mad at me. But I tell them their cows have legs. And, uh, you know, Dwayne likes to say that, too. They, they walk. So I'd rather, I'd rather own the cows walking the field uh, versus the, the chopper, the trucks, the pile, the yeah, feed and all right. that. So I think there's some opportunities there. Even in dairy, as we look at backgrounding or dry cows or young stock, uh, of being able to utilize grazing. And it's yeah, better for the overall health. Yeah. So. Tremendous, tremendous opportunities there, yeah. And, and you know, and, and I, I would say that I think as an industry, we maybe even need to consider a sixth principle of soil health. And that would be to maximize soil biology. It, it's kind of implied within the other five, but I think it's such an important thing that I'm not so sure that it shouldn't have its own little line on there to just really get us thinking in terms of biology, because that's the thing that we've been lacking the most. Now, if you do those other five things, you're going to get the biology. But but again, it's, it's a little bit implied, and I want to really bring that to people's, uh, the forefront of their minds, because, you know... Uh, one of the biggest changes we made in our own farming operation is just thinking biologically and and when we make a decision and and we still don't always make the right decisions but at least when we're making the decisions the question we ask now is how will this affect our soil biology now we may not always come up with the right answer but i think that's the right question anyway mm-hmm. and and that's interesting that you add that sixth one and uh but as far as you know like uh, to finish my my previous point is you're existing at the ex- intersection of all the five and obviously the sixth. And yes, yes. You know, some of the fun things we've been doing uh, with, with you is we've got some of our product to rev up, which is biological stimulant that you're treating our seeds with. And that's a, yes. a great way to get it in the field, especially on drills where we don't have a lot of drills set up with uh, liquid kits and, and those kind of things. But, you know, um, that's the basis of what we've been doing for a long time with, with our production program is how do we enhance biological activity by one, yes, there's products you can apply to improve it. But number two is make sure we're not doing something that would take away from it. So, that's, you that's know, right. the, the intense tillage uh, and high nitrogen rates all at once. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, and long, fa- long fallow periods. Yeah, long fallow periods, uh, trying to eliminate that. Uh, also looking at how can we in- incorporate crop rotations and, and, and those kind of things. So, 
Right. Interesting. Mel, you, you hear it here first, uh, maybe on the Ag Emerge podcast, the sixth soil health principle. So now we have to remember one more thing, Kim. That's right. And, uh, we're well, only it's half, not official yet. We're, we're, only half, <laughs> we're only halfway through. We could come up with the seventh by the end of this uh, podcast. Keith. There so may keep... be. There may be. I have to keep a cheat sheet in my uh, phone to uh, refer to. No. So one of the things you've been talking about for, for some time now is, is just thinking of the underground community as, a, as an economy. And um, I've, I've appreciated your, your approach there with your, your car- carbonomics presentation and kind of realizing a, there's a supply and demand function to things and, and overall how that community functions. Um, walk us through a little bit of, of, of carbonomics and how you, how you really came up with that. I mean, some of us have heard that. Uh, we don't want to give it away. I imagine you'll, you'll probably talk a little bit about that at Aggie Merge. Um, but, you know, when, what was the basis of that and how did you, you come up with that, uh, that concept? Basically, uh, it had been a kind of a concept rattling around inside my head for a number of years. It, it kind of got started uh, probably five, six years ago uh, after listening to and visiting more with uh, Dr. Christine Nichols, who, uh, you know, is just one of the sharpest minds in the, in the soil health uh, industry. Uh, just, she's got some great teaching on, you know, plants and soil health and how it all works together. So after visiting with her and just, you know, she talks a lot about carbon and carbon cycling and it just, you know, the, the, the word that just keep kept coming to my mind is this is functioning just like an economy. It's just functioning, you know, you got buyers and sellers and, and all that. And so that, that kind of floated around in my head for a couple of years, you know, riding, you know, longer hours in the tractor going down the road and stuff. And so I just kind of finally started writing a few things down and the, and the more things I put down, it's like, Oh, well this works and this works and this is a good parallel and this is a good parallel. And so finally I put it all down in on paper and got it into a nice PowerPoint format. And uh, basically the concept of carbonomics is that your soil is functioning very much like the economy of a country. And the, you know, the premise of, of an economy within a country, I talk about there's seven, seven really key parts of it in the economy. If you're going to have a healthy, robust economy, you've got to have supply, you've got to have demand, you have to have currency, capital, uh, resources and energy, infrastructure and defense. And so then I take those seven key economic principles and uh, I show how each one of those is happening within the soil. And the three main players within the soil is actually the, the physical part of the soil You've got the soil biology, and then, of course, you have the plants, and you have to have all three of them. And so the carbonomics talk basically just shows the interaction between those three players within the economy and how all those seven economic principles are being played out uh, with with the main part, you know, the driver, of course, being carbon. Carbon is the currency. I'll, I'll give that much away. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler. Uh, but carbon is the currency that really drives the system and makes everything work. And when we don't spend time thinking about carbon and how can we get more carbon into the soil, uh, we're really kind of shorting our system. It's like trying to run an economy and you have, uh, it, it's really hard to get the money that you need to do something. And, and, you know, we've all been there as producers. You can't do much if you don't have access to some money, uh, whether it's your own money or borrowed money or, you know, but you've got to have that in order to drive your system. And it's the same way for plants. Plants can't do much if they don't have carbon. The soil can't do much if it doesn't have carbon. And the soil biology, for sure, is not going to be able to function properly without enough carbon. 
so as you are building that carbon, you're you're essentially building your working capital base. Yeah, that's right. Very very yep. similar. And if you have a, a higher working capital base, then you're also able to typically expand or grow at an even faster rate. And right. I, I think right. it's a great parallel. Don't you think? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, when you get, especially in more arid climates to the west, that that change moving from one percent soil organic matter to two is it, it takes a long time to happen but once you have it working for you don't you feel the change from two to three is uh quicker not only because maybe farmer experience and know-how and those kind of things but once the system starts clicking it it, it tends to um kind of exponentially grow it is is that fair i mean that's... I, I think it is i think it is because i think you said the key word when you said the system because you're not going to get from one to two let alone from two to three unless you change the whole system you're not gonna you'll never do that in wheat fallow you're not going to do that in a corn soybean rotation you it's really hard to build the organic matter if you don't have cover crops pumping carbon into the soil when your other crops aren't growing and so that's that's the reason why cover crops fit that niche so well. Like you said, they address all the principles of soil health, but primarily they are putting carbon into the soil and you're not exporting that out in a grain truck or in a hay bale or anything else. That carbon is being cycled back into the soil. And so, yeah, once you get the system in place and you start uh, making some movements, and, and I say the system because you can't just go plant cover crops, probably gonna have to change your, uh, your crop rotation. You may have to integrate some livestock. You know, you may have to change some of the things that you're doing. But once that system gets in place, then things start clicking. You know, and I know guys that have made really good progress. And then, you know, it'll it'll come in and hit them with a three or four year drought. And, you know, you may go backwards. There's no doubt about it. You know, it, it takes water, you know, photosynthesis. And one of the components, you know, is H2O. And without H2O, it's not going to work. So in the arid regions, it may work slower, and there may be some periods of time when you're going to kind of stand still or go backwards if you lack the HTO. You know, there's always CO2, but there's not always the H2O to make photosynthesis work. Uh, But I think if people hang with the system, and especially integration of the livestock, because like you said, uh, you know, it's much easier to grow a forage crop than it is to grow a grain crop. And so if you're short on water, it, you can almost always grow something to graze where you can't always grow something to harvest with the combine. That's a great point. And I, I think there's a huge opportunity in California to grow these high diversity forages as forages. And then if you do need the grain, buy the grain from somewhere that has water. You know, you can transport grain on rail far cheaper than grow it locally on, you know, $300 a foot water in in california in a high et environment so (laughs) you know using water use efficient crops such as sorghums and such and then being able to add the grain in for the starch content that you need you know digestible fiber has to be grown locally you know starch and proteins can be imported far far cheaper so i mean those are you're buying in water you know it's we see the same moves by saudi america saudi arabia for example bought a whole bunch of hay ground down in blythe um in order to be able to import hay to their dairies, uh, mm-hmm. you know, halfway around the world off of Colorado winter wa- river water. So they're essentially buying Cal- Colorado river water by, by doing that. So Yeah, it's crazy, you know, crazy it's, to it, think about, yeah. But you're right, the limiting resource isn't carbon dioxide, and we keep making more of that every day. So the <laughs> limiting resource is the uh, H2O in the C6H12O6. So mm-hmm. um, that's, uh, that's, that's a very good point. It, it's, it's that and... 
you can't have photosynthesis if you don't have a plant growing. So they're the limiting factor oh. is how much fallow period do you have? Because that only works if you have a chlorophyll and chlorophyll is only going to be found in plants. So if you don't have something growing, you know, you're, you're losing ground. You're losing opportunity to harvest that sunlight and turn it into carbon. Do you know anybody can help you with that, Keith? <laughs> I'll check. I'll check around. <laughs> Ask around, see if there's anybody there in Bladen yeah. that you can talk to. So let's talk a little bit about this year. It's been a wild ride for most of the, most everywhere in the country. Uh, I mean, tremendous number of prevent plant acres. Uh, just flew back from uh, California. A lot of holes in fields, uh, wet holes planting around, a lot of abandoned things. And then uh, I, I'm going to, we're recording this on July 29th. I want to note that, and uh, USDA continues to uh, change the rules. It seems like they do that on a weekly basis. Um, and, and now the latest thing is that cover crops have to be planted by August 1st. So I imagine the last uh, week or so has been uh, kind of challenging for you. Um, talk a little bit about this, the uniqueness of 2019 and the prevent plant acres and the late planting and, and those kind of things. How, how have people who are been on the cover crop um, uh, bandwagon bus, whatever you want to call it, been utilizing them for a few years, how they've approached it and used it this year, even from planting green, you know, how those things that I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a big question here, how the planting green to the prevent plant uh, for people who have, and then the people who are newcomers like, oh gosh, I need to plant something other than weeds. Um, you know, what, what are some of these weird, weird dynamics you've seen in 2019 um, and how is that all working? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely been an interesting year. Um, I, you know, I guess from, to, to begin with, I, I talked to a number of guys, uh, particularly in South Dakota. You know, South Dakota was one of the hardest hit states, not only because they were so wet, but because they have a shorter growing season than, you know, the rest of us do. So they have shorter windows to get their crops in before they have to kind of abandon the idea uh, I talked to some guys up there that said the only crops they got planted is where they planted green, where they had that cover crop growing and it was pulling the moisture out of the ground and they were able to get in. Still wasn't ideal conditions, but they at least got something in. Uh, you know, so from that standpoint, you know, the guys that are planting green, they've got that cover crop pulling some of that moisture out. I think they found that that, that, that definitely made a better planting environment. Now, it can make you nervous. You know, it's, it, I wouldn't recommend it if it's the first experience with cover crops because you go out there and you look at five foot tall rye. That can be a little intimidating if you've never done it before and if you don't have your equipment set up properly to, to handle the kind of residue. So it can be done, uh, but it's definitely something that you want to plan for and have the equipment set up to do. There's great equipment out on the market now that you can plant through tons and tons of biomass and residue. So from that standpoint, I think it helped guys get stuff in. For where they just couldn't get anything in, it definitely gave people lots of opportunities to plant cover crops, you know, during, you know, June, July, and in and, and August here, where they normally wouldn't be able to plant any warm season things if they're in a corn-soybean rotation typically. You know, they have that opportunity to get out there and plant that. Now, one of the things, you know, the USDA did change, and, and they did a good job with this, and I think it was fairly timely. They changed that prevent plant grazing or harvest utilization date from November 1st back to September 1st, and that was a really good change. That happened in time for people to really be able to go out and do things and do things timely. Uh, so that was a really good thing. I, I applaud their efforts for that. That had 
lots of bipartisan support, both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, everybody was in favor of that. It just made perfect sense. So I'm really glad they did that. Now, this whole thing, yeah, that they came out with two days ago saying if you're going to get the, the market <laughs> help payments, you know, but it has to be in by August 1st, which, oh, by the way, is less than a week away. Uh, that's a little bit of a problem. Uh, I, I, I don't know if they will change that date. There's been uh, I know there's been some requests made to USDA to extend that to maybe uh, August 15th. Now, I know guys that still their their fields are still covered up by water. You know, if they're along the edges of rivers and stuff, that water is just now going down. Uh, so that August 1st date, I think, is a little bit tight for a lot of guys. Uh, I'd like to see them open that up and expand that back. Uh, well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. Regardless, uh, there's still good opportunities. I love planting cover crops about the first week in August because it's the perfect opportunity to mix both cool season and warm season species together. It's, to in my opinion, it's the window of highest diversity opportunity because if you're planting earlier in July, there's not a lot of cool season things that are going to work real well. They're, they're going to kind of burn up. They'll get covered up and outcompeted by the warm season things. If you wait till the 1st of September, and again, I'm talking kind of for the Midwest area here. If you wait till the 1st of September, you've run out of the heat units to really make a sorghum or a millet or a cowpea work very effectively. But around the 1st of August, there's a good window of opportunity here where we can do warm season things like sorghum and cowpeas and sun hemp. Uh, but we can also start mixing in the oats and the barley and the peas and the radishes and the turnips. And we can really have some nice 12 to 15 way mixes that go out this time of year uh, and do really, really well. And those are just fantastic for grazing cattle on because we get some really high quality forage grown in the next 60 days with all the heat. Those things will die off. And then my cool season plants, the turnips and radishes and oats, they'll really come on. Uh, and they'll grow all the way into the middle of November. And then I can turn cattle out there, you know, sometime in November. And it is just a smorgasbord and cattle come off that stuff. And they just, they'll really get fat. They'll just fatten up like ticks because there's such high quality forage out there. I'm sure you've seen that on your own farm. Yeah, it is a unique opportunity. And I think back to what you're saying, the people are planting green. Uh, we did that this year. And, and like you said, it's not the thing to do your very first year. It's kind of a crawl, walk, run approach. We 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 did it um, started on small acreage, you know, six six acres per field, three fields, three years ago, right? Just to mm -hmm. to see what would work. And then last year we did a few more fields. And then this year, you know, we we intentionally leave that skip strip in there, so we plant three rows on seven and a half, leave one off, and three rows. Then we come back and split it with the thirty inch planter, and worked great because this year it got away from us planting on June third. We had you know shoulder tall rye that we're planting corn into and that'll make you a little bit on the nervous side <laughs> but uh you know we got the sprayer with the the floaters on planter goes through and and two hours later it, it's it's sprayed out terminated and then we ran a roller this year for the first time yep. flat roller worked fine you know now if you're going to try to terminate it wouldn't work so well mechanically but worked great and you just have to adjust your nitrogen front row your nitrogen a little bit more and and you'll, you'll probably agree 100% uh, uh, planter nitrogen is your friend when you're doing cover crops, especially high biomass cover yeah, crops. Yeah, pl plant, planter and post-applied. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have a lot of guys tell me, you know, that, you know, they, they saw alleliopathic effects of rye on their corn. Their corn turned yellow, so it's that alleliopathy of rye. Mm -hmm. And And I'm not saying that that can't happen or doesn't happen, but I would guess that, 
90 to 95 percent of the time when people yeah. see yellow corn after rye it has nothing to do because allelopathy is is a chemical thing what they're seeing is it's completely a nutrient cycling yeah. thing and they had their nitrogen out there too soon that rye sucked it up that's what rye does that's right. what you want it to do it sucked it up and it didn't let go of it fast enough and mm -hmm. so then their corn suffered uh, and, and yeah, it can be managed around. That's why I'm saying you have to change other things in your system. I, I love what Steve Groff says. You know, he, he Steve says cover crops will make a good farmer better and a bad farmer worse. Yeah. And so if you're, if you're not willing to apply better management techniques to, with your cover crops, it's going to hurt you. Yeah. And that's something we've advocated for many, many years with Power to Grow system is, you know, first nitrogen in the field is the planter. Yeah. And then so it's everything planter and side dress. That's that's all we do. And uh, uh, but it fits well for this, and especially the more mature, more lignified some of these cereal grains get, you know, the more need there is for upfront nitrogen to kind of offset that. But yeah, anyway, it, it's been a struggle, but uh, we really, we really loved how that worked this year. You know, uh, if you couldn't drive across the field, at least you could float across on green, uh, green cereals, right? So that's right, that's right. <laughs> so, um, I think there's an opportunity, and, and nationwide, we've got a real cover crop shortage right now um, because of all the acres that, uh, you know, USDA says there are very few acres that didn't get planted, but I think we kind of know better. Uh, but uh, um, real kind of an opportunity there of people throwing things at it. Um, what would you say when people are doing maybe a cover crop for the first time because, uh, you know, they have empty acreage? How would you encourage those people to take advantage of this opportunity to learn and, and think about cover crops more than just as an afterthought, but as part of an integrated system? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I think the easiest place to start, uh, if you're in a corn soybean rotation and you've got some open acres right now because of prevent plant, uh, I, I would come in sometime in this first couple weeks in August and I would plant a mix that is primarily going to winter kill. Uh, because then you don't have to worry about managing it in the spring. And so, you know, oats, uh, the, the radishes uh, would work really good. Uh, you can still do a little bit of sorghum out there. Uh, we've got some cheaper sorghums that would work really good for covers. Even if it only grows 45 to 60 days, you'll get some good growth on that yet. Uh, you could, if you're going to corn next, you know, you could do some legumes like a winter pea or uh, some crimson clover, some different things like that. Uh, if you're grazing, you'd probably want to sprinkle in some turnips or collards or some, some you know, really high energy brassicas like that in there as well. Uh, but, you know, oats or barley that is, that's going to grow and, you know, until you start dropping down to the low 20s and then it, it dies out. You know, that's that's a pretty safe bet. You know, that's that's a pretty easy thing to do. If you maybe got some experience or if you feel like you've got uh, some people around you to kind of help give you some advice, uh, then you can start looking at some things that will overwinter. Uh, annual ryegrass, cereal rye, triticale, hairy vetch, some of these things. Because you will get more benefits if it overwinters and grows into the spring. You just have to be ready to apply a higher level of management to those things. And so, you know, it kind of depends on where people's comfort level is and you know what kind of what kind of mentors they have around them or what kind of support system they have. Because it could be your first time doing it, but if you've got friends that have done it before and can give you some good advice, I wouldn't be afraid to try a little bit of cereal rye or hairy vetch or annual ryegrass out there. But if you're kind of out there on an island all by yourself, you, you might want to maybe try some of those things. And I love what you guys did. You know, try six acres on a few different fields. The rest of the field, maybe you just do to something fairly simple that's going to winter kill. 
but I encourage guys to plant some plots of something every year, even if they're not sure if it'll work or not, because that's absolutely the best way to work. And you can learn as much on six acres as you'd learn on 600 and it's way cheaper to do it. And if there's a problem with it, you know, you just have to manage that separately, but it's not that hard to manage a few acres separately as opposed to large fields. Yeah. And I think, um, that that's why we always try it and we appreciate the partnership we have with you being able to uh, offer uh, your mixes to our customers and and uh, help guide them along that way and be a part of that integrated process so that they're not having you know train wrecks on the on the back end of those things I, I think that's key to make sure they've got their nutrient plan right and planning conditions rotations and all that considered but looking looking forward um Here's where we are today. I mean, cover crops are on, I, I forget the latest stats, um, but I think it's, is it about 8% of the acres are using cover crops today? Is that high? Or uh, yeah, I think it's 18 to 20 million acres. So that's probably about right. Still pretty low percentage. Right. Where do you, um, where do you say things going? And do you think 2019 has helped us a little bit to get there? Um, and and where, do you, where do you see next five, 10 years headed? Well, I mean, we're we're convinced that it's going to continue to grow. Uh, we continue to invest in infrastructure, you know, more grain bins, more buildings, more people. You know, we, we started out, like I said, in, in 2009 with, you know, basically a 50 by 50 building and just my brother and I. And, you know, now we've got all kinds of bins and buildings and 40 employees. And, you know, we just continue to grow and continue to hire because we believe that it's going to continue, the demand is going to continue to grow. I think several things will drive it. Uh, you know, 2019 is going to help because most people, when they see cover crops and they see what they do and they see what it uh, is not hurting their next crop, but is actually helping it, the planting conditions are better. You know, they just talk about how, how mellow that soil is and how easy it is to plant into usually once they see that, you know, they're going to try to figure out a way to make that work in their system. They're now, hopefully they don't have prevent plant acres every year, but there are other ways to get that integrated into part of your system. So I think that's going to help because it's going to give guys, you know, a, a way to look at it uh, that they normally would not have had. I think the other thing that will drive it is, is I, I just can't help but believe that there's going to be more and more, uh, you know, environmentally friendly, whether it be regulations or programs or incentives uh, to, to get these out there to, you know, protect water quality, uh, to protect, you know, soil from eroding, uh, to help cycle nutrients. You know, it, it's, you know, we've got such a nutrient problem and, you know, with runoff, uh, both from just, you know, nutrients uh, being solubilized in water and running off, but also in erosion carrying away uh, nutrients into our lakes and our rivers in the Gulf of Mexico that I think we're going to see more encouragement, uh, possibly more regulation. I would rather see encouragement than regulation, mm -hmm. but it may have to be a combination of both. Right. Uh, and I can't help but believe that cover crops are going to be a big part of that because, uh, again, of what we talked about, uh, how they meet all those principles of soil health. And it's really, you know, the, the whole soil health and cover crops it's really one of, if you think about it, it's one of the few things that has come up in ag in the last hundred years that works exceptionally well agronomically for the farmer, but it also is a tremendous benefit for the environment and it's a really easy sell to the consumer. I mean, we've never talked to any consumers about what we're doing and they say, well, that's a dumb idea. Why, why are you doing that? 
you know, I mean, everybody's in favor of conserving the soil and, and having cleaner water and, and having less nutrients. You know, I mean, that's, you just can't argue against that. You know, that's like apple pie and kissing babies, you know, just that's pretty universally <laughs> accepted and liked. And, and so we believe that there's going to be more of a demand for that. And our hope is, is that once consumers see that, and once some of the technology that's being developed right now to, to do better remote sensing of nutrient quality in food, once some of that starts to get into the hand of the consumers and they can actually see, okay, this potato was grown in a healthy soil system where this one wasn't, and they can scan that in some manner, shape, or form. Now they're going to start preferentially buying the ones coming from the better soils that's going to be a tremendous, tremendous uh, influence and incentive for, for farmers to change their systems if they can get paid to do it. And, and not just paid by a government payment, but paid by the consumer because they're selling a better product. Well, you, you just opened a can of worms there. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, if anybody's looking for the golden nugget of information, it was that last one minute. Of what, everything was fantastic, but you need to listen closely to that last one minute. Well, that's one of my, my dreams or the visions for the Ag Emerge Conference is I see the regenerative ag movement, soil health movement, uh, is, is solid, and, and we need to go there. Okay, and, and it's been happening largely on smaller stakeholders. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, your, your 10, 20, 50,000 acre growers are like, ah, you know, we have to keep stuff standardized. We, we can't, the extra yeah. management and those kind of things, we just, we can't, we can't, we can't. But, you know, that's slowly changing. But we're trying to bring together um, new technologies, just like what you said. And one of the presenters that's going to be there is an expert on blockchain. Mm -hmm. And that's a great, and we're going to have other people talking about sensing technologies. So rather than just, you know, pointing at the potato in the store to do the nutrient portion of the potato, which is entirely possible with an app, right, to be able to identify those things, probably more so on produce, okay? Uh, we right. Do, you know, uh, NDVI color sensing on your iPhone. But what what we're looking at is, is what was the soil health practices of that potato, Okay, and, and how do we track that through the entire value chain all the way to the customer? Mm -hmm. And we keep that in an open source format instead of, oh, we met the, met the food safety guidelines, great, it can go in a box into the store. It's going to say, this is how this was grown with regenerative ag practices, with green cover seeds, uh, cover crop mixes, and, and utilizing our crop nutrition program, and, and all those type of factors combined with artificial intelligence on a decision-making process that says, hey, Keith is really concerned about water quality and air quality, and these practices contribute to that, and it would select for you the grower you know, who, who is growing that to meet what you want to feed your family. Because ultimately, we get votes every day on what we do, and it's called right. when a consumer buys what we grow. That's Today, right. as a farmer, we're disconnected by a lot of middlemen. But the, the, the threat to the middleman with the new technology is being able to connect the consumer directly to the farmer in, in a way with, you know, machine learning type technology to, to bring that connection and close that loop. So I think that's part of uh, one of the visions of that'll come out of Ag Emerge is connecting the consumer to the farmer. And the other thing is getting ag technology to focus on that connection. Yeah. Instead of focusing on how do we make two more bushels in a way that's not sustainable? 
Yeah. You know, that, we, that, we need uh, to change to how do we use technology to make, make uh, regenerative ag work? Yeah. Well, that sounds like a really great conference. I might have to come to that. I think you should. <laughs> and in fact, uh, Keith, I think maybe you should be a speaker at it. <laughs> what a novel idea. Oh, wait a minute. He is on oh. the agenda. Oh, gosh. What a great gonna... idea. <laughs> well, I tell you what, it's fun because that first day we have those 17-minute Ag Emerge um, uh, talks and it's uh, addresses, we call it, for the alliteration there, but uh, where you got to really get the big picture condensed down. You know, and then uh, then the second day you can dive deep. So uh, that and, that might be my biggest challenge all year is condensing that down to seventeen minutes. I've I've been kind of thinking about that. I <laughs> That's going to be that, that, that'll be a challenge, but it needs to be done. Well, so. I'm sure you enjoy TED talks, don't you? <laughs> I do. And, I and, do. And the key is is that they they really distill it down to the to the yeah. why. You know, and mm -hmm. then we can get into the how and what. You and I like to talk that stuff all the time, but it's really the why. Why are what's driving this and and what's your what do you see in the future of agriculture so we kind of got yeah. to see a great example of it uh, with shannon's uh presentation and the opening of uh, the soil health so that's supposed to be out uh yeah yeah. yeah yeah you you should you should uh kim you should talk about those they call them ped talks and not ted talks yes Yes, so a little play it, on uh, soil uh, yeah. structure there, and I, I think. My understanding is they're going to release four or five more of those throughout this year, so those will be very interesting. Uh, uh, you might put a link to those off your website or something for people to get to. For sure. Ped for talks, sure. huh? Yeah. Yep. yeah. Ped talks. See, that's, that's uh, soil scientist humor. Yeah. <laughs> They think that's it's funny. Right, that's about as good as it gets. <laughs> that's about as <laughs> God bless them. <laughs> it's, it's good stuff, man. It's good stuff. So, oh, my uh, God. Noah, we really appreciate your time here today, Keith. Any Anything that um, I should have asked or things that you'd like to mention here before we, we part ways? No, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to coming out. Uh, you know, I've had I've had a number of people ask us, you know, what, what do we think the next big thing coming is? And, uh, you know, in, in my opinion, it's it's going to be the, the biologicals and, and matching the biologicals up with the cover crops. Mm -hmm. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. There's got to be a lot of research, a lot of probably some new sensing technologies figured out. How can we look at root exudates and what biology is supported by what root exudates? So then we can, you know, kind of tailor make our custom or custom blend these, you know, for the biology. Uh, as much as anything so that we can select cover crops based on root exudate profiles. So there's some tremendously exciting things that, you know, the next five, 10 years, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. This, you're you're yeah. on the pioneer, the, the leading edge of this. So, yeah. And yeah. to think, like you said, it's only, only been 10 years, really. Yeah. That's yeah. a, that's a it's blink. A, it's really pretty in its infancy yet. Well, I just want to say thank you because um, so I went to YouTube University starting off about uh, three years ago or three and a half. And and uh, your uh, your presentations were something that I filtered towards because of just the nature of how you teach things. So if there's one thing that that we could encompass about a lot of this stuff is that and what you've said today is that you, you very first said that you needed to figure out a way to bring people, to bring your family back to the farm or to be able to keep them there. And that's a motivation. That's really your why, isn't it, of, of all this that you're up to. But not it was to definitely mention, one of them, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you're, you know, the soil health and, and that great mission. But the other thing I, I heard you say several times in here is don't go it alone. 
And I think that's what's something different about what's happening in this whole soil health movement is the sharing of information, uh, the willingness to try things and figure out how they're going to work and what does work and what doesn't. And that's kind of been a theme with a lot of the folks that we've had uh, through Ag Emerge and other things is that they're they're out there trying it and, and seeing what works. So I think that's what makes it all so exciting uh, is that y- you guys are enthusiastic about it. You're excited to make these changes. And so I, I don't know if I get pumped up about that kind of stuff. I think it's neat to see you guys get excited about it. So... Well, and that's that's one of the best things about being in this industry, especially, you know, because we're kind of in it as producers as well as, you know, on the on the retail side of selling a product. But, you know, farmers are, by and large, a, a really great subset of people within the country. Absolutely. But then when you look at the people that have that soil health regenerative ag mindset, it's a subset within that subset that are the best of the best, kind of the cream of the crop. And, you know, just really good people to work with. And like you said, Kim, just very open to sharing ideas and information. And, and that it's fun. It makes it fun to farm again. We've had a number of people tell us that, that they just hadn't had any fun farming for quite a while until they started down this path. And it's not just that you see good things happening on your soil and your land, but you're meeting other people who have a like mindset. And that's that's really important. And that's why I encourage people to go to, conferences, you know, like Ag Emerge, like No Till on the Plains, like any of those events where you can meet with like-minded people. Uh, it, it, you, you just have to do that. You can't do it on your own. That's right. That's right. Well, excellent. Really appreciate your time today, uh, Keith, and, and good luck. Uh, I know you got a lot of orders going out this time of year. It's probably chaos. You're probably safer upstairs than out in the yard. <laughs> if, I, if I had to guess, the forklifts <laughs> of the trucks are probably just screaming through there right now. Well, I... I've got good people around me, and so if I just stay out of their way, they, they get the job done. Uh, so do I. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful. So, very good. Thanks so much, Keith. We okay, really appreciate forward it. Okay, look to in California. You bet. Take care. What a great visit with Keith. We packed a lot of information in that podcast, and you can find out more about what Keith is doing by visiting their website at greencoverseed.com. And don't forget... The 2020 Ag Emerge event is quickly approaching. We've got an exciting lineup for you that includes Keith Burns as well as Dwayne Beck, just to name a few. Ag Emerge is more than a conference. It offers a unique opportunity to hear multiple perspectives and to learn how thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and forward-thinking growers like you are tackling some of the most challenging problems in agriculture. It's an immersive experience with new technology highlights and big picture discussions on emerging trends in soil, plant, and animal health, with ample opportunity to trade ideas amongst some of the best minds in agriculture today. Join us in beautiful Monterey, California, January 7th through the 9th, and for more information, head on over to agemerge.com to stay up on all things Ag Emerge. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day.